In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. That's lls.org slash bigclimb. Seven fifty five is real with David O'Brien and Eric O'Flaherty. Welcome back to seven fifty five is real, and we are still waiting. I am David O'Brien, Braves writer for the Athletic, and I'm with Eric O'Flaherty, my co-host, former Braves reliever. What is happening out in Seattle, Eric? So I don't know. I was just riding this thing out, staying home. I think we're starting to hit a wall here with the shelter in place, but as a whole, we're doing all right. Your How you kid, doing? Your kids are still alive? As long as it doesn't rain, they're fine. But when they get cooped up in the rain, they just start punching each other in the head and screaming all day. <laughs> we as long as you're outside. not punching them. No, I think my <laughs> wife wants to, but she's got she's got the restraints. <laughs> um, well, we're going to do another today instead of uh, just talking, starting about talking about negotiations and everything. There's a stalemate. You guys all know about it by now. Um, at the same time, as we've said, it's negotiations. It was going to be ugly. Eric told you it was going to be ugly. But if if in one week, don't be surprised if in a week, all of a sudden, there's a deal. Just don't be surprised is all I'm saying. Because I know it looks hopeless right now. And they're basically exactly where they were a month ago as far as financial, you know, the 50-50 split. That doesn't mean it all can't change in a few days. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I don't think it's... The only reason I don't have high hopes that it could come together that quick is just because the owners aren't in a hurry. You know, they want to play right. less games, so they can just kind of exactly. run the clock. You're right. And that's why I'm not even – I'm tired of even paying attention to it. They want – the only the only timetable they have is they want the season to end at the end of September. Yeah. So they can get the playoffs done in October on a normal schedule because they don't want to go into November because the COVID-19 spike could happen again and they could shut down the playoffs. And because they have all these football games and stuff that TV networks do and they don't want to cut into uh, election advertising and football, some big games, some big college games and all that. So cool. <laughs> money drives it all as usual. So we, I, yeah. I, I went from thinking it made a lot of sense to plan to play into November, you know, all the way to December. I don't think that's happening now at all. So uh, if they have to make it a 50 game schedule, like you said, they, the owners could wait another three weeks to do that and still get it in. Yeah. Uh, whatever. All right. So, happens. <laughs> you're, you're so since you're so enthused about that, we're going to start, we're going to do, we're going to do another Q and a today. We've got some great questions online from, on Twitter from the Twitterati, and uh, we're going to start with this one. Worst team you ever covered or played on? I'll let, I'll let you have the worst team you played on. Um, the 2008 Mariners. I, I was a big contributor to them. Well, not <laughs> really at all. I had my – I gave up like 20 runs and maybe 10 innings and got sent down, but we'd made this big trade in the offseason for Eric Bedard, and we traded Adam Jones, George Sherrill, who was a good reliever, Chris Tillman, a starting pitching prospect, and – Two other pretty decent prospects for Eric Bedard, and the year before with Baltimore, Bedard was just uh, an ace. Yeah, he, he he was unhittable. Uh, throwing ninety four left handed with a big curveball, and so we made this trade. We thought we had the division wrapped up, and I think they went on to lose. I don't even know how many games. <laughs> it was like one of the worst seasons in history, and the drama and all the crap that unfolded. Just it was just a terrible, terrible setup. So that, that's definitely the worst team I played on, even though I was only there for a couple weeks because I sucked so bad. That was. I mean- a 61 and 101 team. <laughs> we thought we were winning the division. Yes, you uh you finished 61 and 101 and you were you're fourth in the AO West. And let's see how many let's see how many uh 
games out you were. Uh, a thousand. Huh? It, it was it was just one of those years where this, the vibe was so bad and just, the team just fell on their face. <laughs> I threw um, – I got into – so I made my first <laughs> opening day roster and they were thinking about making me the closer and they even put me in the closer's role when uh, oh, J.J. Really? Putz got hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I had a good year the year before. Uh-huh. Uh so I got into seven games. I threw six innings, 15 runs on 16 hits, a couple homers, four walks. <laughs> I was going to say, you were three you, whip. You were kind of exaggerating with the 10 innings and the 20 runs. Cause yeah, <laughs> I, I went overboard. It was worse than that. <laughs> six and two thirds. Yeah, yeah three point, I basically, uh, you had a solid 3.000 whip. <laughs> <laughs> they called me the patron saint of Birdland. Because they, um, we we went to Baltimore our first road trip, and they came out with this stupid um, slogan. They were calling everything around the park, the Camden Yards. They were calling it Birdland, and they were just trying to really sell this Birdland right. theme. And I came in and just just blew up. Just I think I blew all three games or something like that. So Baltimore fans were calling me the patron saint of Birdland after that. Man, you were right though. The previous year, you had a four four seven ERA, but you uh you were seven and one, fifty six appearances. You were just some vulturing that year, huh? Yeah, fifty six yeah. appearances, and uh, that's pretty solid. You walked a lot of guys, but you only gave up I one, had, one homer in fifty two innings. And I had like a two six ERA, and like I was uh, seven and zero oh with like a two six heading into August, and I just hit a wall. I just fell off a cliff, and and I gave up. Probably like four, four or five multiple, like two, three run outings, and all of a sudden I had a four and a half to finish the year. But I remember and- that year walking down the, um, and it was actually before a game against Baltimore. I was walking down the ramp, kind of patting myself on the back. I was like, "Shit, I'm doing this thing. I'm a big leaguer. Uh-huh. I got good numbers. You know, I'm here. I, I pretty much got. I remember thinking this specifically. I thought I pretty much got a good year in the bag at this point. And that night I went out and gave up five runs. Wow. And I went from like a two six to a three four, and it was just all downhill from there, dude. So yeah, so you go from that to the Braves were able to claim you off waivers because of that, right? Did you get you off yeah. waivers if I remember correctly? So you go from that season in Seattle. What were Mariners fans saying when you go to Atlanta over the next five years with the Braves, oh nine through thirteen? You made. 295 appearances and had a 1.99 ERA <laughs> and a 1155 whip. I, I don't mean, know, man. Good Lord. <laughs> I don't think I do that in Seattle though. I, yeah. And I've I've said this a lot of times, but you know, coming over and throwing to B Mac and David Ross and just the atmosphere in Atlanta was was yeah. playing for Bobby Cox. I mean, Bobby Bobby gave me the shoes off his feet my first day in Atlanta. Literally. Uh yeah, literally. I walked in and I was going to ask Bill Acre for some uh, new new shower shoes because I'd forgotten them. Uh-huh. And Bill just, he liked to mess with rookies. So he was just mean mugging me and about to blow me up. And Bobby was like, this poor kid jumped out of his seat, took his shoes off and handed it to me and just told me wow. to get out of that office. I've never heard he, that one before. That's good. No, it was cool, man. I still got him. I got him in my uh, closet with oh, his kid. autograph on him. Yeah. I'll That's never throw awesome. those away. That, that probably, moments like that can change a guy's career. It definitely did yeah. something for me. That's awesome. That's Bobby in a nutshell, though. Well, I've mentioned this before, easily the worst team I ever covered. And coincidentally, it was after the best team I ever covered. The 97 Marlins won a World Series, Jim Leland managing. Uh, terrific team. Everybody was signed to come back the next year. Darren Dalton was retiring, but everybody else was coming back. They they would have been favorites to win another one or another two. But uh, Wayne Heisinger had already decided, the owner had already decided because he didn't like the reaction uh, the lack of of a fan of attendance that year after he had spent you know a good deal of money the previous winter on a free agent spending spree and brought in Leland to manage, he didn't like they weren't selling enough tickets for his uh, for his liking and he didn't like also some comments like from Gary Sheffield he didn't like how strong the union was in baseball because he came from the trash industry where he made his millions. <laughs> And he wasn't used to people getting talking back as they would view it over there. You know, they weren't used yeah. to, you know, and, and chef said what was on his mind and some other people did too. And I think he just got tired of the whole thing, but basically it was a lack of attendance. He had already decided then before the 97 postseason that he was blowing up the team after they were done. Right. So then they start winning and they make the trade for Dalton and council in July or June. And uh, those guys come in and the team just, uh, they're playing great ball. And uh, they won the wild card and went through and beat the Braves in the LCS. 
beat the uh, beat the Giants in the division series, beat the Braves in the LCS, going to win a World Series. And during a division series, a bunch of the players, uh, Leiter, Nin, I think Bonilla, uh, a bunch of those guys, Eisenreich, went in there and talked to Heisinger and pleaded with him to not blow up the team. They said, <laughs> everybody's coming back next year. We're going to have a big spike in attendance. Uh, just wait and make that at least, at least not, don't make that decision until after we're done in the postseason. We'll see what happens. And he, and he wouldn't budge and he would already made up his mind. And they went out and won a World Series. Sure enough, they start selling parts off before the, you know, World Series trophy is <laughs> before it's even made its rounds through <laughs> Miami. And, uh, the next year's team with a bunch of guys that should have been in double A, uh, you know, a few that should have been in triple A and a few leftover major leaguers that didn't get traded until about May. The next year's team went, lost 108 games. That's the See, baseball what, gods. World Series to lose in 108 games, 54 and 108. And that was the team that Jim uh, Leland infamous, infamously told us two days before the end of spring training. We'd had four, four or five of us writers in there, and his, uh, three or four of us writers in his office, and said, "This is off the record, right? Well, it's <laughs> not going in your goddamn books, right? Because there had been a book written about him the previous year and all this." Uh, <laughs> but he said, "We are going to get slaughtered." <laughs> and we, and we start and we start laughing, and he goes, "I'm serious." This may be the worst pitching staff ever assembled. <laughs> and they did. He was right. So that was the worst I ever covered. What what do you ever think about that though? Like if they would have kept that going and kept those teams together, oh, if they would have had a is there a shot they would have built a culture and had fans in they Miami? They could have changed or? the whole whole course of baseball in Miami. Because if they would have yeah. brought all those guys back, I mean, Eric, they had like everybody coming back who was crucial to the team, except Dalton, who was retiring. Who knows? Maybe he could have even been persuaded to come back, but I doubt it. He was like his knees were gone. Definitely but, not if you blow it up, though. But they had all these guys coming back, like Moises Alou, uh, uh, Edgar Renteria, Ke- uh, Kevin Brown, Al Leiter, Rob Nen, Charles Johnson, uh, uh, not Charles, uh, Jim Eisenreich, uh, Louis Castillo, who had been sent down to bring up counsel. Louis Castillo was a rookie, so they didn't think he was ready yet, but he was coming back. Council would have been back. Uh, it's on and on. They had they had everybody coming back, and then they had all these young guys coming up through the system too, like Mark Kotze, You know, had just been signed or just been drafted. Uh, they had a they had a deep minor league system, like Ryan Dempster. Poor guy was rushed up to the big leagues the next year before he was ready, straight from Double A. But you had guys like that in their system who they ended up you know having to bring up so early, Grilly people like that. Um, it was they were in they were in position to contend to be the the favorites the next year and most of those guys were signed for two more years and they lost how many games a hundred and eight they traded most of the guys in the offseason. then the last big trade was in May when they traded Sheffield Charles Johnson Eisenreich all to uh, the Dodgers when they got uh, Todd Zeal and and. Uh, the infamous trade that brought Piazza over for five days on his just as a stopping point, you know, came he played for the Marlins for five days in that in that hundred eight loss season. I think he threatened to retire. I think my agent said he was threatening to retire over that. <laughs> we got the same guy, <laughs> but he went straight from there. Uh, what to the Mets? So, but yeah, it was a uh, it was unbelievable. Just all these young pitchers, a lot of them really talented, but they were up. They were so far in over their heads. And they were just getting lit up nightly. And this was the home run chase year. So they fed a whole lot of those balls to McGuire and Sosa. When you're covering a team like that, is it just brutal? It's just like, well, why'd you suck again tonight? Well, you know, it's not as bad as covering the worst. I've said before, the worst are the teams that are are just teasing. Okay. Okay. There's nothing exceptional about them. No characters. Nothing colorful. No characters. And they're just below 500 most of the year. Not out of it. But really not, you know, not really seriously contenders. And there's just nobody there. No young guys, prospects. No prospects. So this team, there was a lot to write about. A lot of talented uh-huh. guys that were getting lit up or coming up and striking out all the time. But they were talented. They just weren't ready. A lot of guys wanting to get the hell out of there but weren't gone yet. So guys like like Gary Sheffield that I mentioned, he was in that trade to the Dodgers. Yeah. Did anybody yeah. in Miami seem to care? Oh, yeah. They were People were pissed initially. You know, 
when it was they don't, it doesn't seem like that now. Like anybody even, I mean, they'd climb on board. They just took so long to yeah. do it, but they had to like <laughs> take the tarps series. off. Finally in the uh, playoffs, they had to take the tarps off yeah. division series. They had the tarps on and they sold all the seats. So they took them off for the LCS and they almost filled up the place. And then for the world series, they sold the place out. They had three games in Miami and they yeah. drew over 200,000 people for those three games. Damn. Yeah. There were people sitting up in the top, level a top row of seats in straightaway center field you need binoculars up there to even see anything how do you blow it up after that that's crazy yeah well i was a stubborn that's back baseball karma man that's the baseball gods a stubborn just, guy wayne heisman the next year. should have never been an owner he owned the dolphins you know and he made his millions like in waste management and all this stuff and he just did was not should not have owned a baseball team when, that's crazy uh, anyway uh, here we go. This uh, And that question, by the way, was from uh, Taylor Mooney, Mooney Pie 13. The next one is from Tim Gordon, home, home Tim Runner. Slightly heavier than my last question, but in light of everything going on in the world today, I'm interested in both you and, and Eric have seen in terms of changes in the racial environment during your time in MLB, positive changes, areas of improvement still to be made, et cetera. Oh, go ahead. You know, it's never, it's funny because outside of the clubhouse, it might seem like it, but once you're in the clubhouse, man, I've really, I can't even think of many instances where I saw it just be, I think mainly because even if you were, say you were from us, from an area that, you know, you had some racism in your bones, um, it, it wasn't going to be accepted in the clubhouse. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I've throughout my years, I maybe remember a few guys making kind of offhand comments under their breath or something like that. But uh-huh. Really, it, the the big difference is just the culture between Latin Americans and and American guys, and there can be a ton of headbutting and and a, and it's you know it's so important when you have teams to have a Latin American guy that embraces both cultures and a, and some American guys that embrace both cultures because a clubhouse can get segregated in a hurry, and it can just be kind of Latin guys versus Americans because uh, you play the game different ways, you speak different languages. It's, it's just a tendency to be sitting at each other, you know, sitting at a lunch table with each other and spending all your time with with these two groups. I mean, I remember one year we had a teammate that didn't know Moylan's name in August, and they've been teammates all year long. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, had to, he had to nudge a guy, and then he gave him the, the, the point, you know. He, he asked another Latin dude, um, asked his name, and he said Moylan. And he goes, hey, Moylan. But he wanted Moylan to tie his tie. <laughs> but he didn't know the guy's name after <laughs> after five months. So, I mean, there's a reluctance sometimes on yeah. both sides to embrace each other. And that's that's one of the biggest battles. And that's why I always say a guy like um, Martin Prado is so huge. Because all of a sudden you get a Prado on your team. And and it's kind of like a bridge. And everybody's sitting at a table laughing together. And those always seem to be the teams that do the best. Because there's always going to be a mix of uh, Latin and American guys. And you just you got to bridge that gap somehow. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I, 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 that's I've seen just what you're talking about is the only real uh, the bigger the bigger cultural differences between uh, American gringos and and Latin players uh, because there's so few blacks today. When I first started covering 25 years yeah. ago, even 25 years ago, there were a lot more blacks. But I mean, that was at the era when they started to be a lot fewer. But there were still two or three on most teams, you know. Uh, and it was only when I come to Atlanta, I started covering teams that had like no blacks or one, you know? Um, I mean, it was just weird. I remember covering, you know, like with the Marlins, for instance, the year we had, we had like, for instance, have Cliff Floyd, Preston Wilson, Gary Sheffield, Derek Lee. Uh, you know, we had a pitcher, a strong, that was like a 31 year old rookie, but we had all kinds of, you know, there were black dudes over there. Uh, Devon White, um, you know, just Bobby Bonilla. Uh, I think Bobby was Puerto Rican, half Puerto Rican. I don't know. Anyway, but there was, my point is there was a lot of black dudes. So there was a black culture around and now you don't, there's so few. And like with the Braves, there's years where they don't like right now, they don't have a single one. So you, I saw somebody talking, I think it was Brett uh, or Clevenger. That's the Clevenger that pitches for the Indians was yeah. talking, kind of went off on a rant about it, but you know, a lot of it's like the travel ball and, and just in general, how hard it is yeah. for kids to play. It's, it's turning into like a, a rich white it's, sport. Yeah, it is. And I hate to say it. In this country. In this country. You know, it's because if you want to play against guys, you have to pay a thousand dollars to go try out or some stuff. And there's all these crazy travel 
teams and different shit. And I, I talk to these coaches all the time. I'm like, but kids don't play Little League and Babe Ruth and Pony anymore. Yeah. And it's it's all political. It's all about getting your kid on the best team. And there's these dads willing to pay enough. And their shitty kid gets on the team over yeah. a more talented guy. I mean, youth baseball as a whole is just such a mess right now. And I try to think of solutions to it all the time. But it's I don't really know. I mean, it it's a it's a big one to take on. Yeah. And it it just pisses me off just seeing what a scam amateur baseball is now and these kids what they have to go through just to play and these dipshit coaches selling snake oil telling them their kids gonna be in the big leagues if they do these lessons but if they don't play for this team for them they're not gonna make the high school team i mean it's just such a scam it pisses me off anytime i see anything to do with how youth baseball is but it makes a lot of sense you know if you think about underprivileged kids they don't stand a chance because you got to buy helmets bats gear yeah and on top of all that you can't go like if you want to shoot hoops you need a basketball and you can go to a park and you could work on your game you can play by yourself or play a pickup game you can't play a pickup game of baseball Mm -hmm. you can go throw at a cement wall but you're not going to get much better doing that and who's going to do that as a kid i mean i threw rocks at my garage you know i just went outside and did that and i don't know if kids play as much outside anymore you know there's a lot of tempting video games and shit inside but, but black kids in the city they're not going to do that they're going to go play hoops they're going to go play football and make yeah, a lot just, you know just throw the ball whatever um and it's such a skill sport i mean you have to put so much time into refining those skills whereas you just can't get that time in baseball to practice enough and i i, I honestly i'm not offering any solutions i just right? think it's all messed up i know and i think it that got, explains it got why. all messed up i think i think unfortunately travel ball Started out it. maybe with good intentions, you know. Not and anymore. I think it just mushroomed and spun completely out of control. I think Perfect Game started off with good intentions, getting exposure for these Midwestern kids in Iowa who yep. didn't get to play in these these uh, Sun Belt, you know, baseball showcase events. Where they, and and for high schools that played, you know, forty fifty games a year, however many they do in the warm weather states, you know, in Iowa they might have had a fifteen game season. So it started Perfect Game started for that reason. But they've become so big and kids have to be in, they feel this pressure to get involved in that and their parents feel pressure to get involved in that. So they start having them in these showcase events and travel ball when they're, you know, sophomores in high school. And like you said, paying so much money to, to fly them or drive them around everywhere and spend their, you know, and be specialized in one sport and get seen and. Oh, and all the just, kids playing year round, you really can't compete with them if you want to play other sports because they're they're just so much farther ahead skill wise. Yeah, yeah. And then you got you got so many. I, I'm not big into specializing at all. And then a lot of you get know, hurt because they play pitch. Yeah, they get hurt earlier, but yeah. they still they're going to get all the opportunity because right. they're on these teams. I mean, there's look, there's plenty of good people in youth sports and 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 youth baseball in general. There's just there's enough right now that are just greasing parents over that. You know, it's it's really hurting baseball as a whole because you a lot of the best athletes. I mean, can you imagine if LeBron James grew up throwing a baseball? <laughs> he'd yeah. throw 107 and he'd have eight yeah. feet of extension. I mean, it, you lose so many of those athletes because it's just not an option for him to play baseball. And European, you know, like kind of like in, in Europe, the soccer is number one and they yeah. get their best athletes going to soccer. You know, at like 15, some of them are right. professionals. If you had, yeah, if you had even half of the best athletes in the U.S. going to play baseball, I mean, can It'd you imagine some of, some of the guys? That, and they used to, they used to do that. Look at athletes like, you know, we're talking about black athletes. Look at guys like Ricky Henderson. Does a guy like that even end up in, in baseball now? No, he's a running back. Exactly. Or a defensive back, you know? I mean, look what happens when a guy like Deion Sanders or Bo Jackson does play baseball. Even if they're split in time, look how good they can be. But that's why you get these like Cuban guys or guys from Dominican yeah. that are, you know, they have the athleticism like and everything. But yeah, that are just these freaks. Bo Jackson. Yeah, he's he. I don't know if he's you know mentally the same. Right, strength wise. He, he, but strength wise, yeah. I mean, and he's just Puig and Cespedes are just Bo yeah. Jackson replicas. They're just extremely talented athletes. That they, if they grew up here, they'd be playing football. If Ronald Acuna grew up here, would he be playing baseball? Doubtful. You see that guy dunk? You see what that guy can do? I mean, he's an athlete. (laughs) The funny, you know, the funniest thing about him dunking for me is that he doesn't even know how to jump. I know. That tells you how little basketball he played. He ran full speed at the hoop and squared his hips up and jumped off at two feet. If you watch any dunker or or NBA player, somebody, they'll always angle their hips at a 45 degree angle. Gives you more leverage and power. This guy doesn't even know how to jump and he could still dunk. It's like, that just shows you what an athlete is. And he's only like six feet, barely six feet tall. Yeah, and he's jumping off two feet on a dead sprint. 
Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code 755 at checkout. Again, that's go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code 755 at checkout for 25% off your first order. Uh, okay, next one from Troy Moore. T. Houston M. Uh, he says, let's be honest here. If the Braves happen to win it all this year with no fans, does it make the title less special? Love the podcast. Troy Moore. Um, no. Does it make it less special? I don't know if it makes it less special. I wouldn't think so. They're going to get a, whoever wins the thing is going to get a World Series trophy, World Series rings, yep. and they're going to have banner hanging at their ballpark. And 10 years from now, I mean, how many people Look, remember get, the Dodgers winning no. in a short season in 80, what was it, 80, 80, 80 what was it, 81? 81. Nobody remembers that was a short season when they won it. They've only won two in like 50 years, and one of them was a short year. But nobody, nobody remembers cares. that now. I mean, I think people, a lot of people are going to remember this because it's been such a crazy year, but, it, you know, Right, you're still gonna. It's gonna be complete freaking chaos just to get into the playoffs anyway. I mean, this might be the hardest year to make the playoffs because if your team slips up at all, you might get into a hole you can't get out of. It's just different. I don't think it's it kind of dulls it at all. But you know, if you're gonna have to get into a bigger postseason tournament, you know, there's gonna be more teams in it. Dodgers went 63 and 47 that year. By the way, 110 game season. Yeah, I mean, just this is going to be a year where you just you just have to get in somehow, and then hopefully the best team rises to the top. But it's going to be a chaotic year. But if you win a World Series and you get to do the parade and and get rings and all that as a player, I don't care how many games we played in the regular season. You know, it's especially you know slugging away. You hit to August and September in the regular season, you already know you're in the playoffs. All those games don't mean anything anyway. I mean, you're just trying to stay sharp, and then the postseason starts and and you wake back up. So. It could be really good postseason baseball. And how about this factor too that nobody uh, nobody mentions or thinks about is how about if you win it this year? What does that do for the confidence of all your young players? Oh. You, I mean, this could be the you think this could be care? A, <laughs> yeah, exactly, huge stepping stone. You know, and you do it in a year where you know for the Braves, there's a lot of pluses in, in, in that, you know, say Freddie Freeman's elbow, for instance, he's had time to heal. Cole Hamels has had time to heal. So you got a chance to you really make the most out of the assets that you have. A couple of pitchers that have never gone, you know, 200 innings yet uh, are at the top of your rotation with Soroka and yeah. Freed. They don't have to do that this year. They can wait till next year to do that. But think about what would happen if you were able to win this thing this year. Or whatever team wins it that hasn't won it in a long time, but what it could do for a young franchise, they're not going to care. They're they're not going to say, yeah, yeah, but we only played seventy games. They're not going to no, say that. The, the, that's the point I'm trying to make is that once you get to the postseason, the the regular season's a wash either way. Whether you yeah. played a thousand games or eight, yeah. like once once the postseason starts is when the intensity yeah. just kicks up to a whole new level, and nobody's going to try less because it wasn't as easy to, or hard to make the playoffs. You know, it, the intensity is going to be through the roof, especially if everybody's still got fresh legs, uh, you know, yeah. It, yeah. everybody kind of hits that second win once the playoffs start, but you're going to have, like you said, you're going to have Max Fried mid season mode. He's going to be in at what 60 innings under his belt or something like yeah. that going in the playoffs. So you, you're going to be able to ride your bullpen hard. Um, I, it's just different. I don't think it doles it at all. And think about it this way too. How many teams have won the world series as a wild card? Quite a few now, including the nationals yeah. last year. 
Well, who remembers that the Nationals didn't win the division last year? Nobody cares. Nobody cares, Nobody you cares about in, anything once you're in. Yeah. So what's the difference in whether you play 70 games or 160 if and you go if so what's the difference between winning the division say and going into the playoffs in a 70 game season or finishing as the wild card 10 games behind your division champion and going into one World Series? You know, nobody says, "Yeah, but you didn't you finished 10 games behind them during the season." Nobody gives a shit. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing is it's it it just for players it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you get there. You the whole yeah. goal of the regular season is just trying to get your foot in that door. I guess the only the only thing that could kind of take away from it is if the competition's weaker. Like say the right. Dodgers don't get in cuz they just have a shit show, bunch of injuries right. and guys can't in shape, get in shape or you know these the the banger teams if they don't get in um, and it's almost like an easier route. Say, say the Braves. I still don't think didn't, it cares. It matters. I don't either. <laughs> but if you know, you could knock the Braves if they didn't have to get through the Nationals. Like say Strasburg and Scherzer were banged up for the first couple of months, and they don't even get in the playoffs. And you right. feel like they have a better team. Right. But that's just baseball season's too long anyway for me. It's it's like you're five games back in May, and you're four games back in September, and then the last two weeks. The last two weeks settle everything anyway, it seems like. so. You're going to end up playing basically a college season. Yeah, know? pretty much. <laughs> yeah, well, if it's 50 games especially, that's going to be – you could you could legitimately have a team that thought they were rebuilding this year and just gets hot for, yeah. for a couple of weeks and gets out in front and then just hangs on for dear life and still makes the playoffs. Or the best team could start slow and not get in, uh, especially now that they're saying the the initial plan of having a larger postseason tournament might not happen because they want to get this thing done, you know, before possible spike. So we might not. We'll see. Uh, what's a city and ballpark that everyone should take a vacation to at some point that isn't obvious? Well, I'm going to start this because I'm going to mention where you are, Seattle, and that ballpark mm. in the middle of summer to me. It doesn't get much better than that. It's beautiful, and that city is beautiful in the summer. It's a great walking city, hills, great food, water. You could take the ferry out to all these islands. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's the best in the summertime. That would be mine That people uh, that's not obvious to most people. I think everybody should see a game at Pittsburgh, you know, at um, PNC Park in Pittsburgh. The city, for me, isn't, isn't, you know, it's just a city and ballpark. Uh, the city's cool. I mean, you got the river. It's it's got good weather in the summer. But that ballpark, if you get good seats, the 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 backdrop at that, that stadium with the stadium. city in the background, the thing they did right there is they have really low bleacher seats in the outfield, and you don't see that in yes. baseball. You know, yes. Wrigley's got it, um, but not a lot of stadiums have it. And the when you have best. those low, you have those low um, bleacher seats in the outfield. Uh-huh. It, it almost has this cozy minor league feel to it, but it's a major league stadium right on a river. It's one of the best settings in baseball. Every time I'd go there, I'd just be like, man, this place is – I love being there. I don't think it's coincidence that three, if not all four of my favorite ones have little uh, low uh, outfield seats like you're talking about. My favorite two – Nostalgia. Are, are PNC and uh, and San Francisco is my favorite. Well, they have like no outfield seats or you can see everything yeah. behind there and it feels yeah. like a time warp. And then also Wrigley and Fenway. You know, they've added some at Wrigley but not many and uh, – Fenway too, they've added some, but it's still pretty low, pretty low seating out there, but not like those other ones. Yeah, and if you're sitting in the second deck or third deck in those stadiums, um, it for me it's it's perfect. The, the the bottom the bottom deck you can you can still see everything, but if you got the second deck, you just got these awesome views. When I'd go to Pittsburgh, I'd always run the stairs and try to just uh-huh. you know when I was done, I'd just hang out and look out at it. Like man, this is a cool place to. To find yourself in the middle of like a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of the, summer, they got the Roberto Clemente statue and the Willie Stargell statue out there too, and the blue. Yeah, you lights. can walk along the river. It's, yeah, the it's blue a good lights setup. at night on the little like look like uh, airplane warning lights all over the stadium. Yeah, they look pretty cool. Um, and if you do go to Pittsburgh, go. I think the stand is still out there beyond the center field, beyond the scoreboard. There's a stand out there. They sell barbecue with pierogi on top. Mm. They have a pierogi on top. You know, that's the Pittsburgh thing, pierogies. On top of barbecue, like pulled pork. Yeah. It's, uh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Um, both you and Eric, this is from Luke Swaim, uh, and Luke Finks is his handle. He says, it, both you and Eric have talked about how difficult it is to make it in the big leagues. Who is the most talented player you both have seen that can never put it together and become a star or even really good? Eric, go ahead. Ooh, I have to say Brandon Wood. Um, Brandon Wood hit 
40 something home runs in the Cal League one year. And then he tacked on like another maybe 10 or 11 in the Fall League. So he wound up having like a 58 homer season in the minors. And everybody was talking about this guy like he was a god. There's nowhere to pitch him, there's nothing to throw him. Um, he was hitting opposite field homers, pulling breaking balls. There's just no way to pitch this guy. And so I, he made it to the big leagues, but he couldn't do it. You know, he couldn't put up any numbers in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this guy was a phenom. I think he was probably number one prospect in baseball yeah. after that year he put up. And then yeah. he just fell off. a. He, was. I, he didn't fall off a cliff, but he just never really lived up to that season again. But that kind of just shows you the difference between a ball and the big leagues. You know, it's, it's kind of foolish to think that, um, what a guy is doing in a ball is going to transfer because the pitching so much less talented. But um, when it's that convincing and it's a guy hitting 58 homers and then going to the fall league against some of the best prospects and doing it, um, we all thought he was going to be a star and he didn't turn into much. I would, I, I don't want to, I don't think I'll cite one guy, but I'll cite like a, uh, a series of guys that the Braves have had and the Marlins had one or two too, that the Braves have had a couple of guys that threw a hundred hit triple digits back when that really meant something when there was only a handful of guys in a game that ever did yeah, that. Now everybody does it right now. Everybody seems like they have a guy that throws a hundred or more. Um, but they all they threw a hundred, but each none of them ever did anything in the big leagues. If they even got to the big leagues, uh, a couple of them developed a horrible tendency for walks, way too many walks. A couple of them just it was a hundred straight, and guys they get to triple A even, and there's hitters at triple A even that did it that could torch them. But definitely the ones that got to the big leagues with a hundred mile an hour straight fastball and nothing else, no second pitch that was any good, they just got lit up in the big leagues. So um, see that but, a lot. Yeah, and it used to be it used to they used to get rated a lot higher. I think they not that they fooled anybody that scouts were fooled by it, but I think that radar gun people used to just think if a guy threw hundred, they'd figure things out and you know, and work through it and get to the big leagues and eventually dominate. And there were but a bunch once of the hitters. Once all the hitters are seeing a hundred, it, it's yeah. not that cool anymore. You know, every hitter has seen a hundred now. So when a Chapman came over and was throwing mm-hmm. hundred and two, it was like okay, right. he doesn't really have to have a secondary, but now. Like you said, every team seems to have at least one guy in the pen that throws 98 and up and six more prospects on the way that if they can figure out a breaking ball are coming too. So everybody gets a look at it, even in the minors now. Yeah. Even a kid at St. Louis that throws 104 or whatever. Yeah. He gets hit. And he's max effort and he gets hit. So it's kind of the worst. It doesn't strike people out either. Right. It's like the worst of both worlds. He gets hit. Plus he's max effort all the time. So he got hurt and we knew he was going to get hurt and he got hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more more torque on the ligament, but a lot of kids are selling out for it. You can't, man. You cannot survive, uh, have a long career doing that, can you? Then nobody's done it yet. It's I mean, just how you do it. Nolan you know, Ryan's like, a freak, okay? No, no, that's just an entirely different planet. So is Kimbrell, you know, and so is you know yeah. Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom. But, you know, if Jacob hasn't been around a long time yet, though. No, and he had a lot of injuries in the minors. Yeah. But he doesn't do any kind of crazy working out. He he just does tubing and shoots hoops before the game and throws 98. And, and that's why guys like that don't scare me as much as guys that had to manufacture it in the yeah. weight room. And Kimbrel, then you're changing man, your body. He's like Billy Wagner. Those legs, they get so oh, much yeah. of that from their legs. I think he's, he's just yeah. his hips. If, if you're a baseball fan listening, there's a slow motion side angle of Kimbrel on YouTube in black and white. Just type in Craig Kimbrel slow motion on uh, YouTube. It's one of the coolest pitching videos you can watch. You won't regret it. it. It really shows how he leverages his body. I think that's saved so much wear and tear on his arm. or He's avoided major elbow or shoulder injuries so far. Yeah, but like for me, if I would have tried to throw like Craig or if I would have tried to throw 95, 96, I mean, I blew out anyway. Yeah. But, you know, the extra torque in the way, it, it, I would have just got hurt earlier or not even made it to the big leagues if I was trying to throw hard. Yeah. People don't realize how thick he was from the or is Kimber? from the waist. Yeah, from the waist down, he's a thick dude, man. He's a little gorilla, man. He's, yeah. he's his shoulders are really wide. He's got plenty of beef yeah. on him. I mean, he's he's just a little tank. You know, he's kind of built like that. He's a little taller as Austin Riley. That guy's built like that. He's got a, he's got the yeah. hips and the butt and the legs. That guy can uh, you can see where he threw hard in high school because he can get it across the diamond like that too. And he's it's always a, hard to appreciate guys' size on TV. Yeah, yeah, ones that are proportioned well. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is for, uh, Eric, obviously, what is it like in the bullpen for the first five innings of a game? It's awesome. 
you just watch baseball and you don't have to do shit unless the starter falls apart. <laughs> it's, it's great. You know, you get, you get four five, six of your teammates down there. Usually the closers kind of inside or something, but you know, Turner field was the best cause we had these recliners and we just sit and recline and watch baseball and low stress. And, and it's kind of the purpose is to not really get too wrapped up in the game. Some guys would even kind of doze off or, you know, just not be paying complete attention. But the whole goal is just to sit back and relax because you know it's about to get tense once the fifth inning hits. But usually the rule is, you know, once the fifth inning, sixth inning hit, um, everybody's got to stretch and stop joking around. The first, you know, the first five innings of the game, we're all just ripping on everything happening in the game, laughing, yeah. talking about how annoying an announcer are or muting an announcer, you know, just just like every other fan of baseball. And then once, uh, once that fifth hits, you get your game face on, you start stretching and getting serious. And if you're dicking around after that, you know, there'll be somebody tell you to, you know, get serious and lock in because <laughs> if you're not locked in when you come in the game, man, it, you can give up a four spot in a hurry and blow the whole game your team worked for. So Unless you're rough. Unless you're Soriana. <laughs> well, that's the other side of it, man, is he he never gave a shit. And that's like the magic. If you could find a way to not pitch like your life's on the line, which is the whole goal to relax in those first five innings. But yeah. shit, Sori would be on a he was he'd be on a waterbed. He had this this freaking waterbed uh massage table thing. He would lay on that thing and watch Telemundo until the seventh. <laughs> and then he'd walk down to the bullpen and high five everybody and the phone would ring and his heart rate would go from like 50 beats a minute to 47 beats a minute. <laughs> he was he was inconvenienced when the phone rang because he actually had to work and he'd just go put up a zero, ice his knee and drink a beer after the game and go home like just another day at the job. But, you know, not a lot of us are able to do that. You know, it's he had that he just had the magic mindset. Uh, next one from Adam Grant, 89. Do you think the Braves' plan A is to have a starting 2021 outfield of Acuna, Pache, and Waters? If so, do you see a need to add a more veteran presence to the lineup somewhere else? Man, um, I think sometimes people, while while people, while teams certainly plan years ahead, you have to with drafts and all that stuff. Um. Sometimes I think we get a little carried away and we think that the team is planning things exactly the way we are because it just makes – it looks like, you know, oh, how could you not have Acuna, Pache, and Waters in the outfield together? But, I mean, as far as we know, they could be planning to trade one of those guys. They're never going to tell us that. But if you look at it, well, obviously you're not going to trade Acuna. It's your franchise for the next no, decade. But he could get hurt, or another guy could get hurt. You but, know, it's, but right, it's hard but to plan my that. point is, like with Pache and Waters, Pache, I don't think you're planning to trade him because he's the best defensive guy in your in your system, outfielder. And I think he's the kind that could win you. You know, I mean, he could be Andrew Jones defensively. He's that. Yeah. He's probably that good. But Waters, for instance, as much as he's a Georgia kid, everybody likes him. Everybody likes his his his, his cockiness. You know, he's an athletic, ton of talent. No doubt. But so far, what has he done to make people think that he's certainly that he's a long-term answer in the outfield? So far, he's struck out way too much in the minor leagues and the high minors. And this year, he looked over overmatched completely at spring training. So to say that a year from now, he's going to have figured things out, especially now that it's not going to be a minor league season. Yeah. You got to reevaluate. There's not going to be a minor league season. So this guy's coming into it. Coming off last year's year, where he struck out way too much and struck out way too much again in the fall in uh, spring training, so I don't think it's, that their plan A is to have those three in the outfield next year. I don't think I think that's getting ahead of ourselves. And you can hope for it. You can hope for <laughs> it for sure. And the other thing I look at it is: is there enough power from those three? Certainly, there is with Acuna. I mean, he's got you know yeah. he's 30, 35, 40 home run guy, depending on which ball is used. Pache might be a twenty homer guy. We don't know. He hasn't done it yet. And Waters hasn't done it yet. So to project, I mean, two spots in the outfield where you're not getting a lot of much power from, that's a little rough when you're not also not getting much so far. Uh, you're not going to get much from shortstop. You're getting a lot from second base. You're getting a lot from first base, obviously. Third base, you don't know. Austin Riley should part get of a it ton too, though. if he's What your if guy. those two guys both go off? What if Camargo and, and Riley are both raking? Then you find a spot for one of them in the outfield. Exactly. You can do that. There's so, so much. A lot can happen. Guys fall on their face and guys take make huge strides. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that they'd love to have that much. If everything works out, they wouldn't be sad if those were their outfielders and they were they were all doing well. But there's so much up in there performance wise and and prospects. Man, you got to prove it. Nobody, nobody in the big leagues cares 
what Baseball America wrote about you. You know, you you got to come up and, and get the job done up there. But yeah, I mean, gotta, I think that'd be that'd be pretty cool to have if they're oh, all doing it. Definitely well. would be. Defensively, <laughs> they'd be phenomenal right away. Yeah. But yeah. Waters just has not shown yet that he's ready offensively. And you got to remember, there's not going to be a minor league season. So he's yeah. not going to be on that. I can't see him being on that taxi squad and actually, because if he is, he has to be ready to play. Yeah. Know? And that's the type of thing that can happen, though. You know, if he's on that taxi squad and gets thrust in to the big leagues and all of a sudden, you know, sometimes you get to the big leagues and, and pitchers are around the zone more and guys stop striking out as much. But normally, if you're striking out too much in the minors, that's not going to get better in the majors. Did you, but I can see Pache being on the taxi squad for sure. I can't see Waters doing it. With his defense. It. Yeah. I can't see Waters doing it because that's just what. You're using, you're blowing a spot there, thinking you're hoping that he's, you know, yeah. that he could help you in a pinch. So yeah, we'll see. But I like him. I like him a lot. I mean, he's really athletic, and I love his cockiness. You know, he's like he's. He, but at the other, at the same time, what if they're look? What if they're looking at uh, some pitcher that we don't know about that's got two or three years left on a contract that they think might be available in a trade? Yeah, you're not going to get a guy like that without trading some big pieces. So there's so much happens. So much happens. Yeah. Well. Uh, Next one's from K Full, KB Full 97. He says, uh, what's your favorite ballpark food? I'm gonna go with two come to mind. Orlando Cepeda's Cha Cha Bowl at San Francisco. Phenomenal. Terrific. Oh. And then the other is the Tri-Tips barbecue sandwich in San Diego. Outstanding. Those are my two. I've eaten none of it. We don't get yeah, it. Yeah, it's like, I don't have anything to weigh yeah. in on, really. And there's um, some good, good brats too. Some really good brats at various places. Uh, uh, spring training, especially of uh, Tigers, Lakeland. Oh man, Tiger Town. They have great brats over there. It's grilled onions. Do they? I, I don't like the chili in San Diego. I can tell you, or in Cincinnati, I can tell you that. I don't like it either. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a skyline like chili guy. Skyline chili, you can't get Spaghetti it out of your face when you're in Cincinnati. And sweet either. and all that. No, I don't like it. My, probably my favorite, um, and I think it's almost like a uh, like a tactic to make you feel like crap. But the clubhouse of Philadelphia, they make oh. these Philly cheesesteaks that are just unbelievable. And you find yourself, you get there at two, and you ask for one, and, yeah. and they just whip them up all day long. And sometimes we'd set the record. The Braves would they they'd keep records up there, you yeah. know. So teams would try to set the record for most cheesecakes eaten in a homestand or in a you know in a in a series. Yeah. And then you just you eat these three cheesesteaks before the game. You just feel like <laughs> a giant slug out there. I swear they do it on purpose. Just smart if they do. But those yeah. things are so good, I couldn't help myself. You know, there are people that are from Philly that have had that have that swear that that cheesesteak in a visiting clubhouse it's at, the uh, best. is as good as any in town. And that it's is the, the cheesesteak capital of the world. Obviously, it's the best. They say that guy makes them as good as well as anybody in town, or pretty close. Kevin McCarpin's from up there, and he said the same thing. He gets one every time. He gets the guy to give him one he knows the guy radio guy kevin from here he we'd have some coaches have like nine in a day <laughs> Who? somebody recently one of the braves had like four in one day uh, that's nothing i probably did that a few times <laughs> i remember one guy had 12 that's a he lot had, of calories dude oh man yeah you can bulk and fill loading easily. there man big time uh Brand I, <laughs> we had a coach we had a coach that one time i saw put butter on a donut this was his uh, diet, but oh, he, he got God. it in. He put butter and sugar in the middle of a Krispy Kreme donut. Who was that? Uh, uh, no, no, I don't want to. I don't want to throw him <laughs> under the bus. You could probably look back at pictures and figure it out. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine but who you're talking about. I remember about. one time he'd had three before uh, batting pr- or early BP. Then he had one after, and then he had three more before the game. And when the day was over, he took he ate two for dinner and then took two more back to the hotel with him. His tally was like 10 for the day. Oh my God. And I think we added it up. It was almost like 10,000 calories he put down just on cheese sticks alone. If he didn't drink anything or eat anything. Without else. giving away uh, names. It's a guy that maybe kind of showed that with in his. Yeah. Okay. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did damage. He wasn't ashamed. This one's from Andy Harris, K 26 DP says, do you see a scenario where the players would accept less than prorated full salaries or less than an 81 game season? I have no clue. I mean, we're just watching a stalemate right now and it's, 
I don't know. I mean, it, it's at the point for me where I would just take a deal just to stop getting these offers. It's been the same offers seven different ways, and they say it's not going to work. And then you wait a week, and another one comes in. The whole process has just been yeah. It's been draining for me, and I have nothing to gain or lose by it. I'm just tired of seeing it. Um, <laughs> I think everybody feels the same way. Everybody's just <laughs> sick of it. I don't know who it fan. benefits to have playing out in public like this or, or floating it out there. I mean, I'm guessing that ownership feels it puts pressure on the players, and they're not really in a hurry, uh, or they just want to show that they're trying. But you know, when you offer five dollars, they say no, and you offer four dollars plus a one dollar game incentive play bonus. You know, it's like they're just moving the numbers around, yeah, but yeah. it feels the same. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm sick of even talking about it. It makes just me take it make, the deal. It, it makes me think what you're saying is so accurate about the owners wanting to play fewer games because they lose yeah. less money. They by just, playing. yeah. So they're making these proposals. They know that the players are not. <laughs> yeah. So then you burn this? off another few days because the players have to come back with a counter or answer. You know. And then they're like, "We're not countering." And then the other sides will be like, "We're not countering." Yeah. And then somebody counters like, "And here's the weekend." Okay, we'll talk Monday. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where they're just keeping the negotiations open but getting nowhere, yeah. and it's playing out in public. It's like I've thought about muting MLB and MLBPA on my Twitter feed just to not see any more of it. And the only reason I pay any attention to it is because I know that we have to talk about it on the right. show. But if I was a fan, I just I would honestly probably just mute that shit and say, "Hit me up when baseball's starting," and just completely check out on it's it. Just, just embers right now, man. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, even care. Gabe Thomas. G Thomas 163 says, sorry for that answer <laughs> on the 95 Dave just reunion, 95 reunion. Dave just, I, th- I think was when they had the guys together on that zoom. It was terrific by the way. Everybody should watch that. So still available on uh, YouTube. Look up the zoom that they did on Fox sports South uh, when they were watching the 95 world series being replayed. It was the best thing I've seen with the involving the Braves in a long time. Uh, Greg McMichael put it together. It's like 20 guys on there, and it is must-watch for two two hours. Uh, but anyway, Dave Justice told the story of when Bobby got mad when Klesko threw his helmet and it hit Bobby in the ankle. <laughs> it rolled across <laughs> the tire. What's Eric's best angry Bobby Cox story? Well, first, that rubbed off on Terry Pendleton. I don't know if you guys ever oh, saw yeah. the video when uh, Chris, Chris Johnson, Johnson was oh, throwing yeah. his helmets all year. Oh, yeah. TP finally had enough and choked him up against the wall. <laughs> Were that you in cool. there? Did you see that? No, we were in the clubhouse and and we saw it on TV uh, just like every everybody else. Right. What, what um, was your reaction in there? I loved it. <laughs> it's awesome. Everybody did. Everybody's ripping on on CJ like TP's about to whoop your ass, CJ. You know, just giving him crap and just stirring the pot after the game. That's one of those great moments where you just get to mess with a teammate. He cooled down once it was over, but uh, that probably the CJ yeah, he was. that is. I love him, but yeah, he was his his antics in the in the dugout were a little too much sometimes, especially yeah. when you're hitting 400 or whatever he was hitting, and everybody else was. He was chasing a batting towel yeah, throwing his helmet. Was, you got guys he, on the team hitting 185. Uh, TP not the guy to be trifling with, man. No, TP doesn't take no shit. No, um, <laughs> uh, he doesn't. But probably the the best Bobby Cox story was when me Chipper and him got thrown out in um, in Boston. <laughs> oh yeah. We've told this story a few times on here, but it's classic. I came in, it was like a tie game. Um, I came in to face JD Drew and worked a one two count, and I threw a bad pitch, just a fastball right down the middle. But Rossi was set up outside and it kind of missed middle in. It's one of those calls that the umpire bangs you just for not hitting your spot, but it's obviously a strike. Um, and as a pitcher, you shouldn't get wrapped up in it. And I, I did a good job most of the time, but that time I didn't. I got a little wrapped up in it and I got pissed. And then the next pitch, you know, I was still thinking about the last one. I hung a slider and he hit a, um, he, JD Drew hits a, uh, the slider off the wall for a double and they take the lead. Um, so after the play, I'm just staring at Bill Hahn, you know, and I honestly, I didn't show up umps very much either, but I felt like this guy was looking at me like he wanted a piece. And so I kind of looked at him and I was like, how can you miss that? And he rips off his mask and says, what'd you say to me? And I yelled at him, how can you miss it? You could see it on the video, but I've just both hands out. Like, how do you miss a ball right down the middle? You know, it's going to cost us the game. And I'm trying to think of some mean, you know, I'm trying to get his ass. I'm trying to come up with something to say. Chipper just comes flying in and destroys this guy where I, I mean, my jaw just dropped. And I was like, oh shit, that's big league smack talk. And then Bobby gets the in. Stash. The, yeah. 
Yeah, nice Chipper starts statue, ripping douche. on his mustache. He's douche. telling him he went looking for it. He's a douche. And he, he's just ripping on him. And then Bobby comes in and just takes it to the next level with stuff I'm not even going to say on the podcast. <laughs> but the long story short, I was going to say something to this up, and I wound up just walking to the dugout. <laughs> I was like, I got nothing to contribute. These guys are so much better at, at smack talking this guy than I am. I'm just going to go to the dugout. The job's done. The two Hall yeah, favorites just him. reduced yeah. him to nothing. <laughs> they destroyed him. I was like, I'll just I'll just let them handle this. I'm out of here. <laughs> oh my God. Uh Kane Miller, y'all, says any chance the long layoff, I think is what he said, and shortened season, fingers crossed, ends up being a oh God, what did he I think I deleted it by accident. Being a godsend, I think he was talking about for I think this was the question about Freddie Freeman, about his elbow. Oh and, yeah. Um, yeah, it could be good. I mean, obviously, Freddie said his his his, his uh, elbow was healed after having a surgery, but you know he only had a couple of months between the surgery and three months October November between get there and starting and uh, full fledged uh, spring training. So he had the one day where it was a little inflamed, irritated. So he sat out a couple of days. So anytime that happens in spring training, yeah, there's got to be a little concern about diving into a 162 game season. So those extra couple of months, three months can only be great for Freddie. I know he's taking, he's doing some hitting, but nothing like he would have been doing, you know, every day at spring training or, or in a season with batting practice. Yeah. Anytime you get cut open, you know, time is your best friend. So I, you know, he did have that little minor setback, which I think is something he probably would have just played through during the season, but playing through stuff got him in trouble in the first place. So the best benefit is probably he doesn't have to make any tough calls in April, May or June. Um, just if something had popped up, he didn't have to make the call of whether to play through it or not. Right. Uh, Cause that's the one thing that can really mess it up. Uh, but yeah, nothing but time's nothing but your friend after you have a surgery. So I think it's, it's probably a really good thing for him. It's a good thing for Hamels. It's a good thing for a few guys. And like we talked about earlier, keeping some of the starters innings down, you know, that'll help the team when playoffs come around. So not the worst team for it to happen to. Yeah. Freddie hanging out at that infinity pool, overlooking the ocean in, uh, Corona yeah, Del Mar. He looks fine. I, I think he's well rested. I think he's going to be ready to rake. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to figure out how they got reservations at the Ritz Carlton in Malibu or wherever they're at. It's yeah. like, oh, that's his house. That's the Freeman house. How'd <laughs> <laughs> like, you guys get this luxury resort right now? Our hotel's closed. With uh, Freed and Soroka coming off career highs and innings pitched, will a shortened season will a shortened season help with their development, less innings pitch, saving arm, et cetera, or will it hinder erasing the progress from last year, less experience? Uh, I, Either way, could go both ways. But, you know, the, the playoffs are where they really need the experience now. Yeah. I could uh, – yeah. You know, I could – yeah, like you said, I could see it both because I think they took a big step last year and both of them pitched a career-high innings, and I think they were both looking forward to pitching around 200 innings this year. Yeah. But at the same time – you know, if you're not that's a good point. you don't have to pace yourself, right? Yeah, but that's a good point. You know, well, the guys are going to have to pace themselves now. You know, like when we talked to Fulte, he said he was ready for three innings. Yeah. So it's going to take guys time to build up. Build up again. Uh, you know, and, and the guys always get paced in April. So, you know, innings, innings, the, the rate of innings guys are pitching is going to never reach that full like seven, eight inning expectation until maybe right. the last month of the season anyway, last 40 days. Yeah. If you only play 50 games, it's, it's, it is kind of a wash in building that durability yeah. and getting through it. Because pitching 200 innings, man, that's like the benchmark for guys to really – you have to go through it and do it at least once or twice before you know you can and your body can hold up to it. And then you're a horse. But they won't get to put their body through that test. So, you know, in that aspect, maybe they're losing a year. But, you know, you only got so many bullets. So right. if, if right. you can have a guy – not throw as many, you know, yeah. in his in his prime years. It's it's not a bad thing. Yeah, when it's not because of injury. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Sadly, at 180, I think is becoming the new 200 if it's not already. But you know, um, it, it, what? Uh, but yeah, I think both of those guys last year showed me something because in a, when the postseason came around, they were both at the top of their they game. They woke back up. Yeah. And, and they had both pitched a career high innings. And, and I mean, yeah. Soroka obviously was phenomenal in his one start in the division series. Yeah. And free. Well, but that's another thing, you know, coming off of, of the most innings in their career, it's not the worst time to throw, you know, right. 70 or 80 this year and then try it again next year versus yeah. doing it multiple years in a row, multiple playoff runs. So I mean, that's a benefit of it. 
Jeremy Page, uh, Page Jeremy says, uh, for Eric, why are players insistent on the prorated salaries when they could still make more with a potential pay cut for 72, 76 games or more games than they would getting prorated, full prorated at 48 to 50? I don't know. Yeah. I really, you know, it's, I think a lot of it comes down to just, being paranoid about getting kind of bullied into a situation and, and not really trusting the numbers of everything and, and wanting to make year. CBA next year. This is almost like just a trial run. I feel like for, for the whole, it, it, like the staring contest is just seeing if we can break Tony down while we got some time to, to play with him, you know, and that that's what it feels like to me. You keep sending different offers, seeing what kind of ground you can get. Um, I mean, there's, there's a good chance that, that they really are just being honest and they are going to get killed, but the whole thing, man, for me has just been exhausting, and I can't really give you a, a thoughtful answer right now. I think the the bottom line is they agreed to prorated salaries, and that's what they want. And and I think that their whole thing is they've said publicly that they're not budging from it, and now they've dug their feet in so far. Um, they're just sticking to it, you know, just to not get it's it's real petty at this point, but. I don't even know. You know, I just think both sides should just take 50% of the blame and get into a room together and say, we both suck right now. Let's just get this over with. DOB and EOF. What is your favorite memory in baseball that you witnessed or experienced during your career? Um, I'm going to name a few here real quick. Uh, one was watching Jim Leland after the frustrations he'd had in Pittsburgh with mostly a lot of low payroll teams and, and getting there and getting twice beat by the Braves. Uh, for him to go over to the Marlins and win it all in 97, the year he went over there and to see the look on his face afterwards. I mean, he was genuinely just overjoyed and that was pretty cool in a, in a, in a seven seventh game, extra inning seventh game. That was one of the best, you know, ever played. Uh, and then the other was or another was watching chippers entire farewell season seeing the respect that he got in all the places they went, especially yeah. at Shea Stadium or City Field by then, but from the Mets cool. fans who had booed him his whole career, to see them give him a standing ovation was really cool. Uh, and then another for me was that moment you were there when uh, the Giants came out of the dugout with Bobby Cox's last game. It t- I mean, that, that After just, we got eliminated, yeah, that, that was That gave cool. me chills, man. When they came out and tipped their caps and, and – uh, and, to Bobby and respect after they had clinched, you know, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. That moment was pretty memorable. Those are, those are just a few of them for me. Yeah. Those are, those are all pretty cool. That, that thing with the giants coming out of the, just when teams do something, they don't have to do like yeah. that. But you, anytime, you know, somebody's earned the respect of everybody inside the clubhouse that much where instead of jumping around, high fiving each other, they were taking their hats off to Bobby Cox's career. You know, that's just a classy move. I love seeing stuff like that. Uh, that's definitely up there for me. Um, oh, one other, probably I got go one, one other, one other, you probably remember this too, before you get to yours, you got time to think, uh, Hayward hitting the first, oh, his first swing. I didn't think of that one. Yeah. Opening day. He catches the ceremonial first pitch from Hank Aaron, which was like the most obvious, you know, handoff. We thought it was going yep. to be at least. And then, he hit, he homers on his first swing of, on opening day after all, all the, the buildup. Yeah, all that the place on was him so loud. That was I cool. never heard Turner Field that loud. That was that's cool. the loudest I ever heard it. Maybe maybe the wild card game <laughs> with the other but, direction booze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, uh, that's that's that one's up there for me too. Um, probably the the so the the baseball moment I witnessed was Ankiel's home run in San Francisco. Oh yeah, because. Uh, you know, that place was rowdy. It was crazy. Uh, just environment was – they were blasting music. And one of the best baseball environments I've ever been in. They're, they're, whoever was running the scoreboard and the music and everything yeah. in that stadium just had that place yeah. raging for that entire series. We played two games there, and they're the coolest baseball games I've watched. Yeah. Uh, but So we went into extras uh, against the Giants that year, um, game two, and – Ankyo hit, I mean, this place was going nuts and Ankyo hit this ball and it's the loudest I've ever heard of baseball. And all of a sudden the the entire stadium was just dead silent. <laughs> into the, the only water. noise. Yep. And he, he crushed that ball into the water. I mean, it's one of the biggest bombs I've ever seen, first of all, yeah. but just being in the dugout for that moment, I didn't even have to look at the ball. I just watched him. That's how hard it came off his bat. 
And then Derek Lowe turning around and talking shit to all the Giants fans <laughs> while the ball's still going over the fence. He's screaming fear the beard at him because they were yelling that at us, you know, because Brian Wilson had the uh, yeah, yeah. had the beard back then. Yeah. But how quick he snapped into talking shit to the fans mode told me he'd been through some playoff runs before because the rest of us were losing our minds. Um, so that was probably – that's probably my favorite baseball moment that I've witnessed, um, experienced uh, 2011 at the end of the year. Um I was I came into the game. That was that crazy uh game where us and Boston both blew huge leads on the last day of the season. Um I came in and and I had some personal stuff riding on it too cuz I had a chance to have an ERA under 1. And I didn't know the history or if it'd been done before, but I knew that was pretty cool. So I came into the game with like a 0.9 and I and I faced uh Shane Victorino with a runner on first and we just made an error earlier in the inning and it had that feel of this game could get out of hand. So it was probably the biggest moment I'd ever pitched in um, in my career because we're trying to make the playoffs and everything's on the line. Uh-huh. And I um, I hang the first pitch slider to Victorino and he hits it 700 feet just foul. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just like shit, this could get, you know, because I'd put together a great season. But if you blow a game like that, the pressure you're feeling as a reliever is that's yeah. all anyone's going to remember about it is, you, you know, you blew. Well, no matter what numbers you put up, you come in and blow the whole season in, on one pitch. But next next pitch, I got a ground ball to shortstop, and uh, and uh, Jack Wilson turned it and got out of the inning. And I just saw, I just blacked out, and started screaming, and I couldn't even sit down for like twenty minutes because of the adrenaline from that moment. But wow. uh, that was pretty cool. That was probably my favorite uh, experience on the mound was coming into that big of a game and, and getting the job done, and and you know, kind of cementing a really good uh, coming out season for me too. Jack Wilson, there's a name you forget. That guy could pick it for a while, couldn't he? Oh, man, he could play. But he had booted a ball. He booted a grounder, a really rare error for him. And he turned a, – the, yeah, to I turn know. a vic- double play on Victorino was really hard. Um, but I remember uh, just the whole thing was just – it was awesome for me. I just completely blacked out once I got out of it. Uh, to wrap it up here, there's one I can't resist asking you. Who taught Eric to place the entire hand in the mouth <laughs> for moisture management while pitching? I always feared he'd inadvertently go too heavy on the rosin bag first, then go full hand and mouth. The results could be, could have been catastrophic. Uh, Eric. Well, all right. I couldn't, I couldn't use pine tar. I always would try to use pine tar and the ball would just gets stuck in my hand and I throw it all over the place. I tried relentlessly tried to use pine tar and, just a little spit on the fingers wasn't enough. The, the balls, the big league balls are so slick. Uh, you see guys bitching about it all the time. That's pretty much why the league just turns the other way to pine yeah. tar usage. Yeah. But because I couldn't use it, I would stick four fingers in my mouth and just slobber on them. And that was enough. <laughs> I know it's gross. Nobody ever wanted to be my catch partner either. But it was enough tackiness to where I could finally grip the ball. And I had to make the decision of, you know, my teammates ripped on me for it nonstop especially relievers, guys in the bullpen like Christian Martinez and Arodis. Anytime I'd start talking shit to them, they'd just start sticking their hand in their mouth and making fun of me. You know, It was like a go-to easy one for them. But, I mean, I just had to do it to grip the ball. So if I look stupid or it looked gross, I was like, you know, whatever. I got to be able to grip the ball. And that's that's the only way I found to be able to do it. So that's what I had to do. So you wouldn't have been the ideal pitcher in the COVID-19 season, right? No, that's why this whole time I've been like, how are they going to – how are they going to keep you know the balls getting thrown around? If it can be on a surface, I'd have it the first week. Well, that's it. That's going to wrap up the show, folks. I hope you enjoyed question <laughs> and answer time. And uh, <laughs> Eric's sticking a whole hand down the mouth. We're going to be back next week and uh, or later this week. And I would say hopefully we'll have some answers by then. But at this point, we'll just we'll let you know when we do hear something. But it's got to happen soon, folks. Let's keep that in mind. It's got to happen relatively soon. And don't be surprised if it happens when it happens in a hurry. So, anyway, uh, we'll be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.